Thank you very much. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Well, like Mandy said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you on this beautiful Sunday morning to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. I see some new faces here this morning, so welcome to those of you visiting with with us for the very first time. So glad to have you here with us. Uh, Also, welcome to anybody who's listening to us through our website, through our podcast. You're also welcome to come and worship with us here on Sunday morning. Well, how many of you had fun uh, Friday night at at the kickball game? Some of us didn't have fun, because if you were on my team, uh, you lost. It's fun just to play. It is. But, you know, when you get to my level of leadership, you, you, you understand that sometimes you just have to take a dive. You have to let, sometimes you have to let the little ones win. And so we let you guys win. But next time, we're coming for you. You know, it was a fantastic uh, time of fellowship and fun on Friday night. We look to continue our summer fun of outreaches and hanging out with one another. Hey, before I begin the message this morning, I have a friend visiting from way up in Duluth, uh, Minnesota, way up there by Canada. And uh, Justin is here. And Justin not only goes to the Duluth Vineyard, uh, a partner of Vineyard Church up in Duluth, Minnesota, but Justin is also working with Multiply Vineyard. And Multiply, for those of you who don't know, we're a part of a larger association of churches, some 600 churches in the United States and some 1,200 outside of the United States. And our movement is a church planting movement. Uh, We are a church plant. We moved here about uh, seven years ago to plant and start this church. And so Multiply Vineyard is the church planting arm of of our movement. It's tasked with helping multiply our movement. So I've just asked Justin to come and share about Multiply Vineyard and just say hi to us this morning. Thank you, Gino. And thank you, South Suburban Vineyard. Uh, I did get to be there for that kickball event. And, um, you know, when you get invited to go play kickball somewhere else, you just think, oh, yeah, that sounds fun. I'm going to have a couple hot dogs, play some kickball. And I get there, and it was like the Cubs were playing the White Sox, right? Like, like Gino and Shannon were dressed all like I had. There were there were little little boys in full baseball garb with eye black on, and they were like ready. So uh, so we had fun, uh, and and I was impressed. You guys know how to have fun, and I can't imagine the rest of the events, boxing and yogurt, and the whole summer. It sounds great. Um, well, as Gino said, I do get to work with Multiply Vineyard. Uh, and, and our role is to support the local church, to support you guys, uh, to multiply, because that's what the church does. Um, and so me and my colleague Jack, we're here spending a little time with you guys to hopefully grab a few notes to, to share the story of what's happening here, because I really believe what's happening here is, is special. I believe God's here. I believe the Holy Spirit is here with you guys. And uh, I think that's been proven over the past seven years. And so I just want to share a a couple quick things. Um, So one, it is the nature of the gospel to multiply. It is this gift we've been given by Jesus to give away. And what I keep seeing is that you guys are doing that, this transformational gift that you give to others of Jesus and his gospel, as well as this transformational community. In the church, we don't have much besides that, right? The gospel of Jesus changing our lives and the community that we get to be in that is also changing our lives together and changing the community around us. And that's happening here. And sometimes when we're a part of the church, uh, we don't really realize that. We don't see that, that we're also a part of something bigger. Because we're in it. We're in here. We're seeing it all happen. We're going to kickball games and we're hanging out and we're praying for people. But sometimes we miss that we're also a part of something bigger. 
And the vineyard is a movement, as Gino said, of church planting churches that have said, hey, that's what we see in the scriptures being done every time a church goes out, that eventually it grows and it raises up folks and it, it multiplies again. And so Multiply Vineyard just gives resources to you guys, to pastors, to leaders, to say, hey, if you're feeling called, if you're doing that, if you're discerning, um, we want to help. And the process is really simple. The process is basically this, right? We live in diverse community, and then we introduce people to Jesus around us. We tell them about what he's doing in our lives. And then we disciple them, and we help them put Jesus in the center of their life. And it changes all aspects of life. And then a few of those folks are leaders, and they say, hey, I'd like to step up. I'd like to run the kids' ministry. I'd like to be up here praying for people. And then we train them. And then a few, the crazy ones, they get asked to go plant a church somewhere else and do it again. The crazy ones who you guys know who all showed up here and are a part of this team who have been doing it. And so in Multiply Vineyard, we're not saying, hey, we're the national team throwing out church plants. We're saying, hey, what's happening in your guys' community? Who are those folks who are feeling called to something else? They're feeling called to kind of extend that to some other place, to the next town, the next city. Uh, And so we want to help discern uh, together. Discernment's a team sport. And I really like how that phrase is because it acknowledges that the Holy Spirit's big enough to speak to you as an individual and big enough to speak to your leaders and your senior pastors to help them discern with you. So if you're feeling that, uh, we want to bless that. And I want to say to you guys that a multi-ethnic expression of the vineyard is so needed. So as we are thinking about How do we discern who's going to go plant the next church and who's going to go do that and what healthy church is like? Uh, This church is a model that other vineyard churches around are looking at saying, hey, how's it working? Because we want some more of that too. We see the Holy Spirit changing some stuff in our heart. We want a community that looks more like the community around us. Or we want our community at church to look even more diverse than the community around us because we believe the gospel is going to break down some of those barriers. And so if I can offer anything today, it's simply an encouragement and a blessing to you guys that you are doing the stuff that the Holy Spirit is here and that this work is so important for the kingdom and for Jesus' work uh, here in Homewood and Flossmoor and the south suburbs of Chicago. Um, So let me, if it's okay, I'd love to just pray for you guys. Uh, So, Holy Spirit, would you continue to be here? Would you continue to be here uh, bringing in folks who haven't stepped foot in these doors yet? Would you continue to disciple folks to bring Jesus right into the center of their lives so it changes every part? And, Lord, would you continue to raise up leaders here in this space that feel trained and called to go extend the kingdom, maybe in the next neighborhood, the next town over? And Jesus, would you continue to bless this community through the difficult parts of being different and multicultural and multi-ethnic in one room? And also, would you bless them with such deep joy for what that kind of community brings into their lives? Would you you continue to bless the work that they're doing here? Uh, And so, Holy Spirit, um, we are thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Justin. So while Justin and uh, Justin is here, if you have any questions about church planting, maybe you just something 
woke up in you as he was talking about church, church planning. Well, he'll be here this afternoon hanging out with us, so feel free to talk uh, to him. And really, if, if this is stirring within you, we're a church planting moment. We want to see lots and lots of churches be birthed out of this one. And so if that's uh, you, if that interests you, we'd love to have a conversation about church planting. Well, I have the privilege this morning of continuing a sermon series that I started several weeks ago in a series that we're simply calling Taking the High Road in Relationships. Taking the High Road in Relationships. And we've been defining the high road uh, as the most positive, diplomatic, or ethical course of action. It's the moral high ground, right? And what we've been saying week after week is that it takes some climbing. It takes some effort to take the high road. I mean, the low road is just you floating uh, by the, uh, along the lazy river of your emotions, just sort of letting life and relationships go wherever they wander. And when life and relationship wanders, it always wanders downward, right? It always goes downward, right? But it takes some effort. It takes some energy to take the high road. And for the purposes of this series this summer, we've been talking specifically about taking the high road in our relationships. If you've been hanging around for a while, you know that almost every summer we take some time to deal specifically with our relationships because we believe that relationships matter. If you get relationships right, a whole lot in your life goes well. If you get relationships wrong, then a whole lot of stuff goes wrong. And this is true because God designed us to be relational people. If you consider what our purpose is on this earth, God put us on this earth to be in relationship, to be in right relationship with him and to be in right relationship with others. We say almost every week that the greatest commandment is simply to love God and to love people, to love God and honor him and to love people. And we boil that down. We consider the fact that we live to glorify God and to be a blessing to others. This is the, the great measuring stick of life. You, want to want, you ever wonder, is this a good decision? Am I relating to this person in the right way? Am I making the right financial decision? Am I making the right decision with my body and my sexuality? We ask, ask and answer the question, am I glorifying God with this decision? And will this decision be a blessing to others? But I want to clarify something this morning because I think that we can get this wrong if we, if we get those two things, in the, if we put those two things in the wrong order. We're supposed to glorify God and be a blessing to other people in that order. And some of us have adopted a counterfeit way of taking the high road and being at peace with others by trying to please people first, by trying to make others happy. And if we get around to it, and if it fits within the scheme of that plan, then we'll see on the back end if it honors God. But this whole thing about glorifying God with our life and being blessing to people, there's a sequence to that. And honoring God for the believer comes first in that progression. Uh, it's so easy to fall into this trap of people-pleasing, of considering that what it means to be a blessing to others means making everybody happy. Listen, you can't make everybody happy. You can't make everybody happy. And I love the quote that says, if you please God, it doesn't matter who you displease. And if you don't please God, it doesn't matter who you please. I'll say that again. If you please God, it doesn't really matter who you displease. And if you displease God, it doesn't matter who you please. 
And so what we've been working through over the course of these last few weeks is how do we relate to people? How do we relate to difficult circumstances, difficult people, those difficult parts of life in a way that honors God and in a way that is a blessing to other people? We've discovered that uh, the true measure of our lives is not determined when things are going well, but it's when we come up against difficult situations and difficult people. And so the goal of this series is to highlight some ways that God is calling us to respond differently in relationships, to take the high road, to deal with situations and circumstances and people in a way that honors God and blesses others. We've dealt with a number of subjects this, uh, through this series. You can check them out on our website if you want to get caught up. But today I'm going to continue this series by talking about a very important topic, uh, particularly as it relates to taking the high road. And I want to talk a little bit this morning about Christian distinctiveness. Christian distinctiveness. To be distinct means to be recognizably different from something of a similar type. To be readily distinguishable by the senses. In other words, something is distinct, that means you can tell when side by side, you can tell that something's different about that. You can tell by using your senses, by hanging around relationally, you can tell that something is different. And in the life of the Christian, in the life of the believer, I believe that God is calling us to be distinct. Now, we got to talk about this because the truth is, I think that Christians might be losing just a little bit, well, let me be honest, a lot of our distinctiveness in the world. Sometimes it's hard to tell when you put somebody who follows Jesus or at least says they follow Jesus side by side with a person who, who doesn't claim to follow Jesus. Sometimes, particularly in this day and age, you really, you really can't tell the difference. And so the burning question that we hope to ask and answer is how are we any different than those who don't follow Jesus? How are our media choices, what we choose to fill our hearts with and fill our life with, how how are those choices any different from somebody who doesn't follow Jesus? How do we parent our children in a way that's distinguished and different from those who don't follow Jesus? How do we do business and how do we conduct our business life from those who don't follow Jesus? How are our relationships any different? How is our sexual ethic any different from those who, who don't claim to follow Jesus? How is our work ethic, our vocational life any different from those who don't claim to follow Jesus. I believe that part of what it means to take the high road in relationship is to be distinct, to be different. I would argue this morning that your relationships will dramatically improve if you decide that you will take a stand for Jesus. I believe that the people in your life, whether it be your family, whether it be your friends, whether it be your coworkers, and even strangers in this world that we encounter, I believe the entire world would be better off if the Christians just decided that they were going to live and love and relate to one another as Jesus commands us to. And so if we consider this whole idea of Christian distinctiveness in the context of our human relationships— We consider the fact that God needs you, God needs me to take a stand in our relationships and honor him above all else because when we honor him above all else, the world is blessed. Does that make sense? The world is blessed. And so I'm simply calling this message this morning the power of a stand. The power of a stand. The power of taking a stand. We're going to look at Daniel chapter 1 this morning. Feel free to turn with me there in your Bibles. The Bible's on the edges of your rows. Feel free to also turn there with me in your phones. Um, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament 
prophet Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. Before I do that this morning, let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this opportunity to worship you. Thank you so much, Father, uh, for giving me an opportunity to stand before your people and bring your word. Father, we want to be distinct, but we want to stand out for all the right reasons. God, we want to bless you with our lives, and we want to be a blessing to the world around us, Father, and we can't do that right just sort of blending in. And so, Father, I just ask that you would speak to us today, that you would challenge us, that you would put your truth on a low shelf for us to grab this morning. And, Father, I pray that there would be no sense of condemnation or shame this morning, Father, but that we will feel like you're speaking to us out of love. And, Father, give us the courage and uh, the wisdom, Lord, to respond to what you would say today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Daniel chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 1. It says, During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. He took it over. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Verse 6, Daniel, Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief, staff, chief, chief, chief of staff excuse me, renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar, Hanani was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and the wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel, but he responded, I am afraid, my lord the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid that the king will have me beheaded. Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. At the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. Verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of food and wine provided for others. God gave these four young men an unusual appetite for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom, and God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hanani, Mashael, and Azariah. 
so they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. And so, a little bit of a lengthy passage, but a fascinating story that tells us how, you know, the prophet Daniel uh, sort of got his start. And so, we see this picture, uh, this early picture of the prophet Daniel, and we see the scene is set uh, by this Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, coming into Jerusalem, the city of God, and besieging it, conquering it, taking it over. Now, interestingly enough, like most conquering kings would destroy everything and deal ruthlessly with the people, this particular king, in this particular instance, didn't necessarily do that. He let the people live, and in some ways this endeared these uh, conquered people to King Nebuchadnezzar. But what he did do is he went into the temple and he took what was most likely the most valuable sacred ornaments in, in, in the temple and took them back to his own temple and placed them where he worshipped his other gods. Uh, the other major thing that happened here is that he told his chief of staff to bring him the young men from the royal families in Jeru- Jerusalem. He said, listen, go and pick the good-looking, sort of well-built guys. Give me the cream of the crop. Give me guys from the royal family, guys that can read well, guys that are wise, guys that are just the the top-tier guys. Bring these guys back. And the goal was to have these young men back into uh, sort of uh, Babylonian Babylonian realms, excuse me, to assimilate them into this pagan culture. And so they're taking these men who served God, who lived uh, in a culture that was full of God's power and might, and, and, and admiration and adoration of God, and they were plucked out of this place and put in a place uh, where all sorts of gods were being worshipped, where people didn't understand and bow to and worship the true and living God. This is Daniel's predicament, as well as the other three guys that are mentioned in this story. Also mentions here that their names were changed. They were given these Chaldeans or the Babylonian names to further assimilate them into this culture. And they wanted to pick young men because they thought it'd be easy for the young men to transition, easy for the young men to forget where they come from and the God that they served. And I think that this, in some ways, is a very perfect picture of the life that we live in today. The scriptures tell us that we're a peculiar people, that we are strangers living in a foreign land. You say, I'm not living in a foreign land. I was born in Chicago. I was born in the south suburbs. This is my home. But in the spiritual realm, as it relates to our relationship with God, we are strangers in this land. We're just sort of passing through. This is not our home. This is not our home. We're just sort of passing through. But so many of us feel the pressure. If you don't, I certainly do feel the pressure to assimilate into this culture, to take on the customs and the practices of this world, and to forsake the commandments that God has given us, to forsake the ways that God has called us to live differently, to maintain a measure of distinctiveness in this pagan, broken world. You need only to watch the news to discover that we're sliding downwards, right? As a culture, we're floating along uh, the lazy river of life and culture, and we're heading downward. We're heading downward. And there's tremendous pressure, much like Daniel was experiencing, to assimilate. 
Uh, nobody wants to stand out. Nobody wants to be that guy. Nobody wants to be the person standing out and causing trouble. And be, You don't want to be that guy. And so there's tremendous pressure to become just like this culture that we live in. We see this in our school systems. There's pressure, tremendous peer pressure to assimilate and be similar to the world that we live in. We see this in our work culture. There's tremendous pressure to become like the people that we work with. It's hard to stand out. When we look at this picture that's painted for us by this uh, chapter in Daniel here, I think that there is some wisdom. There is some, uh, a template here that I think that we can follow as it relates to how we're supposed to stand out living in this pagan world. How we're supposed to maintain a measure of Christian distinctiveness as we try to be God's people living in this strange land. But in order to identify what Daniel did, I think it's first uh, important for that we identify this sort of defining moment. If you've been tracking with us for the last four or five weeks, you understand that each one of these installments contains a defining moment, a challenge that the main character deals with that forces him or her to choose whether or not they're going to take the high road or take the low road. Let's look at Daniel's defining moment. Verse 5 says, The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. And some of you look at that, you say, well, what's wrong with that? The king was probably eating real good. Like, I mean, these guys are taken captive. Of course, they're going to be fed. Well, well, here's the problem. Here's the problem. Daniel and his friends were devout Jewish men. And devout Jewish men uh, follow the dietary restrictions handed to them in the law of Moses, Right? And so there was just certain things that these guys were forbidden to eat. Not to mention the fact that this food that the king was serving these guys was likely used in sacrifices to the king's idols. Does that make sense? And so the king is feeding these guys this food. He's bringing them out this food that's probably looking delicious. It's probably the finest cuts of meat. It's from the king's own kitchen. But Daniel says, man, we we don't eat that stuff. We don't eat that stuff. I know we're way far from home. They've given us different names. They've done all sorts of things, but we don't eat that stuff. We're the people of God. And to boot, it's, it's likely been sacrificed to idols. It's likely been used in pagan worship. And so we, we just, we don't do that. And so in, in the interest of trying to maintain his distinctiveness, Daniel and his friends are faced with this challenge. They're faced with this defining moment. Listen, we're way far from home. Not two people know us here. I've always wanted to taste that meat. And so maybe just a little piece, maybe just a little, um, but he's trying to maintain his distinctiveness. I look at this story and I just see so many parallels between our life today. Things that seem so small and insignificant, but God said, don't do it. Things that seem so petty and things that seem like, oh my goodness, is it really that big a deal? Is it really that big a deal? As we try to maintain our distinctiveness, I want to look this morning at three ways that Daniel dealt with this defining moment, this challenging situation, and how it blessed God and other people. The first thing that we see is that Daniel actually took a stand. He actually took a stand. Verse 8, I believe, is the money verse here. It says, but Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. I read that again. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself 
by eating the food and the wine given to them by the king. And he asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. So I think this is where it starts for a lot of us. So a lot of us get a, Christ, a lot of Christian education. We have access to more podcasts. We have access to more preaching and, and Christian literature than ever in the history of our world. So I don't think a lot of us falter because we don't know the right thing to do. That's some of our excuse, but many of us, we, we know what to do, right? The issue for some of us is that we lack determination. And verse 8 said that Daniel was determined not to defile himself. And this determination here is not just willpower. If I just sort of think hard enough, and if I maybe don't look at it, and if I just say a few prayers, and I just will myself to be good, and I will myself not to fall into this trap, then, then if I'm just strong enough, I'll make it. I think it involves a little bit of that, but I think this signifies that there was just uh, certain things that Daniel had squared away a long time ago. There's just certain things that he had just squared away. Okay, God says to do this, I'm going to do this. This is what God's people do, I'm going to do this. This is what God says to abstain from. He, he squared it away a long time ago. And so when he was faced with the situation, he didn't have to, you know, go and burn incense. He didn't have to consult, you know, they call the preacher. But he, he just squared some things away in his heart. He determined that this is, this, we don't do that. He had established some principles and standards. Rather, he let God and his standard be his standard and his principles. He had lines that were drawn in the sand that no matter where he went, no matter who was around, no matter what the stakes, no matter how petty or insignificant it seemed, he said, you know, we, don't, we just don't cross this line. We just, we just don't do this. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 11, Thy word have I hid in your heart, Lord, that I might not sin against you. I've taken your truth. I've, I've drank deep gulps of your truth in your wisdom. And so that makes me principled. That makes me a person of wisdom and discernment. It makes me a determined person. And so many of us falter, like I said, not because we don't know what to do. Not because we don't have access to wisdom and godly truth. But there's just some things that we haven't squared away in our heart quite yet. And I tell you all the time, a ter- it's a terrible time to try to, to figure out where you stand when you're, in the, when you're in the thick of something. You know, it's a terrible time to try to figure out your sexual ethic when you're in the back seat, you know, and the windows are fogged up and legs are, you know, everywhere. It's, it's a terrible time to try to figure out, well, where do I stand on sex before marriage? Where do I draw the line? Like, how far is too far? It's a terrible time to try to figure that out, to try to square that away. The odds are against you. It's a terrible time to try to figure out whether or not you're going to be honest in your business dealings when the deal is on the table and all you have to do is look the other way and you make millions of dollars. It's a terrible time to try to work out your ethic in that moment. It's a terrible time. You know, the list could go on and on and on. Plug in your situation. It's just... To try to do that in the heat of the moment is, is, is not profitable. It's not wise. The odds are against you. And so what the Lord is challenging us to do as we take in his word and as we take in his truth, the way that we respond to that, even if we're not presently faced with that issue, is that we've squared away in our hearts that this is the line that God draws and no further. This is how God commands me to relate to others. Even to my hurt, I will see to it that this is how I live my life. 
And we're human, we falter and we fail, but you certainly fail if you haven't squared some things away in your heart. Daniel took a stand, and in taking a stand, there were just some things where he would have to say, listen, we just don't do that. And some of you are in really bad shape in your life because there were just too few instances, too few scenarios where you took a stand and said, we are not doing that. Husbands and those of you who lead families, you know what? Your wife and your children need you to stand up and say, you know what? We're just not going to do that. I love my wife, and um, one of the things that I'm very grateful for is that she uh, surrenders the sort of final say at, uh, when we reach an impasse. Uh, she surrenders that to me as the head of our household. We rarely get to the place, rarely get to the place where I'm using that sort of Trump card, right? Rarely. It's kind of like a, you know, fire alarm. You got to like break the glass to get to that because it's so rarely used. But there's sometimes in the course of our life, in the course of our decision makers, that I say, baby, we're just, we're just not doing that. Kids begging for stuff. Hey, can we do this? Can we go here? Listen, that's not who we are. That's not who we are. Things presented as it relates to business and your work life where you just say, you know what? That's not who I am. And some of us are in terrible shape today because we don't have that in our life. We're not determined in that way. We haven't let Jesus set the culture for our life. But one of the things you discover is you look uh, through the life of Daniel and you look through the life of these other men that were associated with Daniel in the story was this wasn't just something that he used to, like, get out of stuff, right? This was like a lifestyle. It wasn't like, man, what are they having today? I don't, I don't like that. I want a salad. I don't like that. That looks like leftovers. I don't, I don't like that. And so let's pull this, let's pull this God card. Let's, let's pull this God card and say, hey, can we get something else? Hey, I don't really want to work on Sundays. And so, hey, you know, I, I got to go to church. I'm sorry, I got to go to church. I'm a, I'm a Christian. Now, this is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. Some of us who haven't chosen to live this way and we're selective about where we take stands and we use this as a matter of convenience, it all breaks down. It's not glorifying God. It's not glorifying God. You go to your boss and say, hey, listen, I can't work Sundays. I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a devout Christian. The boss might say to you, were you a Christian when you were cooking your timesheet? Were you a Christian when you were eating everybody's stuff out of the break room and taking staplers and posted notes home. Were you a Christian then? And so what I'm trying to drive home is that this is a lifestyle. This isn't some trump card. You know, taking a stand with your kids and say, listen, you know, we, hear you, we interact with you every day. Today you're a Christian. When this is convenient, you're a Christian. No, this is a lifestyle. And Daniel took a stand. But as we journey through this story, we see that it's not just that Daniel took a stand, but how he took the stand. I told you that our lives and our relationships, the high road means honoring God, but also being a blessing to other people. And so when we can take a stand in a way that is uh, honoring to other people, in a way that isn't abrasive and isn't rude, I think we should take that route. And Daniel shows us a really good picture of this. I think the how is important as we take a stand. And we see that Daniel tries diplomacy, and it works. Daniel not only takes a stand, but Daniel tries diplomacy. Diplomacy is simply the art of dealing with people in a sensitive and effective way. And we talked about this a little bit, about communicating with one another, 
considering other people's feelings and just being honoring to people and honoring God as we relate to people, this is one of those situations where a little finesse sort of pays off. And so there are some stands that you will take, and there are some situations where there's no wiggle room. It's such an egregious uh, a sin against God that there's no way to say it nicely. There's no way to say it plainly. You have to stand before and say, listen, this is wrong. This is unjust. This sins against holy God and in and, 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 and defiance say, hey, no, right? But most, most situations aren't like that. Most circumstances aren't like that where some diplomacy and some finesse, the uh, Holy Spirit can speak and move and massage things in a way where it could be a win for everybody. Verse 8 tells us that Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to him by the king. So he asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now, Daniel didn't cause a riot. He didn't say to his other partners, hey, on, on three, we're going to turn this place up in the name of the living God. Let's just let's turn it up in here. They didn't start banging on a table with a chant, we won't eat meat. We were just causing a ruckus. They didn't throw an attitude. They didn't put the guy on blast and say, listen, man, do you know where we're from? I'm Daniel, man. We, we're not eating this stuff and walk out, you know, and, and with an attitude. He didn't do that. He, he probably called a guy up a real, real slick and said, hey, man, can I talk to you for a second? Yeah, you, can, can I talk to you for a second? So when he calls him over, he said, hey, listen, man, first of all, we're not going to eat that, okay? Um, is there any way... You can give us a salad or something out of the bag. Any way around this thing. And so the scriptures record the guy's response. He said, listen, I'm afraid, my lord, the king, who has ordered you to eat this food and wine. If you become pale or thin compared to the others used, used I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. In other words, the guy said, listen, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble if you guys turn up looking pale and thin. My job is to fatten you up. My job is to get you looking healthy, and I'm, listen, man, I'm just doing my job. You know, I'm just, I'm just doing my job. And so then you said, cool, let's try this. You're doing your job. I'm not crossing that line. So let's see if we can meet someplace in the middle. Daniel says, listen, give us 10 days. Feed us some stuff that's not on our do not eat list. And see after 10 days. Uh, how, it, how, how it's working. See after 10 days if, if this is something that we can work out. See after 10 days if God doesn't show up and, and make this thing right. And so the guy probably says, so after 10 days, if it's not working, are you going to eat it? He said, no, I'm not, I'm not eating it. I'm just saying let's, let's give this thing a try for your sake. And so I love to see how Daniel's using finesse here. I love to see how Daniel is using the wisdom of God in order to deal with this difficult situation. We simply call this being winsome, and winsome is just a word that means you know how to win people over. Again, you're not trying to be slick, you're not trying to be cunning, you're not trying to be sly, but you're being winsome. The same way you represent God and, and, and have to deny the snacks of the pagan world is the same way you have to represent God when you're relating to people and taking a stand around you. I'll say that again. In the same way that you represent God and you have to deny yourself certain things, you represent that same God who you're in front of the people 
that you have an issue with when you, in front of the people who, who need to really see God's hand at work. And so some of us are just so quick to sass people and so quick, you're just waiting to tell somebody off, waiting to just take this defiant stand in the name of the Lord. And when you really asked him, he would say, you know, I would have done it that way. I would have done it that way. I would have used a little more finesse. I would have maybe worked this thing out a little differently. But Daniel uses diplomacy because he's following the progression. He's dealing with a situation that honors God in a way that honors God, but he's also dealing with it in a way that is going to be a blessing to this person who's just doing their job. Dealing with the situation in a way that's going to be a blessing and that's going to be winsome and that's going to put God display in a way, on, on, in a, in a way that it's going to be winsome. And so he tries diplomacy. And so some of you could benefit from this wisdom today as you take a stand in your life, particularly as it relates to your vocational life. I think there will be many things that will challenge your, your belief in God, many things that will challenge the lines that God has drawn for us. And so the challenge for you is how are you going to deal with this situation in a way that takes a stand, but in a way that is winsome, and in a way that shows the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. How are you going to deal with your children? As they get older, they get wily, their requests have the, the, the stench of the pagan world that they live in. They're asking for permission to do this and permission to do that, permission to celebrate this and permission to hang out with them. I think that God especially wants us, again, to draw those lines, to take stands, but to do so in a, in a winsome way to use a bit of finesse and to get down to the heart of the matter and maybe try to figure out the questions behind the questions. God wants us to be diplomatic and use some diplomacy. Some of you are having issues in your relationship with your school or your education or your child's school where you don't probably just need to go up to the school and bust some heads. You need to pray about it and ask for God's wisdom how to relate to those people and how to take a stand in a way that is... Winsome. And so as we follow this story, we see that there is tremendous fruit that is a result of Daniel's obedience. He takes this stand, he does so in a winsome way, and we see the fruit. Verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of food and wine provided for the others. The plan worked. After 10 days, these guys were looking healthier and they were looking stronger. And this one Daniel and these other guys favor with this guy. And so verse 17 tells us that God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And the king even saw these guys and said, man, these guys are fantastic. After the three years that passed, these guys looked strong. They looked healthy. Uh, they were wise in every possible way. And if you read, continue to read the, chap, uh, the book of Daniel, you'll see that these guys were appointed to positions of power. God responds to faithfulness. God responds to obedience. But God also prefers that we walk these things out, that we take stands in ways that honor him and bless other people. God blesses faithfulness and obedience. We see it time and time again. And if you would live this life and walk this out for more than 10 minutes, you would discover that God honors 
faithfulness. Now, some of you say, you know, I tried the Christian life, and it just doesn't work. And I would say, baloney. I would say, baloney. Listen, I'm not talking about houses and cars and mansions and that you'll float you know, just on a cloud of air if you follow Jesus and you'll begin to sprout wings. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about as a person who's been doing this for a long time, doing so rather imperfectly, I've come to discover that God responds to obedience and he responds to faithfulness. I've come to discover that God responds to obedience and he responds to faithfulness. And some of you have never seen the faithfulness of the Lord. It's not because God's not faithful. It's just simply because you, you won't continue on. You're going to give God a, you know, a three-hour trial, and if you don't hit the lottery in three hours, it's like, well, this stuff didn't work. You want to behave and take a stand in a certain era, and if coins don't drop from the ceiling, it's like, well, you know, that didn't work. And so what God requires of us is for us to be faithful, a long period of faithfulness in a single direction, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, repeat. That's, what, that's the life that God blesses. And for those of you who've been on this path for some time, you know that God blesses faithfulness. He honors it, and he blesses the righteous with favor. He opens doors that should have been closed. And when you take a stand for him, you see God's faithfulness in ways that are supernatural. That doesn't mean you always land on your feet. That doesn't mean that there aren't consequences and fallout from saying yes to God. In fact, if you're a follower of Jesus, just expect to deal with some of those things. But generally speaking, God blesses the life of those who do it his way. Those who take a stand and honor God Listen, I would say this to you. Listen, the, the world around you needs you to stand up. The world we live in needs you to stand up. And so I want to put this all together and make it super practical for us as, as we wind this thing down. I can't say this enough. The people in your life, your family, your friends, your coworkers, the strangers, your neighbors, they need you to be a person of faith. They need you to be distinct in their eyes. And so here's the four reasons as we wind this thing down, as we consider what it means to take a stand, as we take the high road. First, the world needs, uh, the world needs leadership. Um, you turn on the news, you watch the presidential elections, you watch what's going on in Europe, you, you, you just turn on the TV in any realm of life, whether it be sports whether it be the front office of the bulls or the bears, whether it be the highest office in the land, we would all agree that the world needs leadership. And one of the things that leaders consistently do, good leaders, is they take a stand. They take a stand. They're not afraid to make the hard decisions. They're not afraid to take bold moves. And some of you said, listen, I'm not a head of state. I'm not running for office. I don't lead a ministry. I don't lead a small group. But minimally, you lead yourself. Minimally, you lead yourself. And some of the greatest stands that you'll take in life won't be standing on a podium in the town square proclaiming something loud and long. One of the greatest stands that you'll take is in your own life, in your own personal decision-making. Many of you lead families. You have children. Husbands, you have a wife, and you're a leader in that realm. And listen, your family needs you to take a stand. 
Your family needs for you to say, as for me and and my house, we will serve the Lord. Your kids need to see you loving God and see you saying no to some things and saying yes to them. Listen, you're a leader. In some way, you're a leader even if you just lead yourself. And everybody's watching you. Everybody's in your life is watching how you lead yourself. And the stands that you take and how you take those stands really, really matter. The world needs leadership. And if God's people don't take a stand, we simply, simply won't have it. The second reason why the people in your life need you to stand up is that the world needs to be reminded that they're still sitting down. People need to be reminded that they're seated. So if I ask somebody to stand up, I'll do that. Channing, could you just stand up, please? We'll notice that standing is standing up. But what, from my vantage point, what I also notice is that everybody else is sitting down. Thank you, honey. Everybody else is sitting down. And so this is how, why it's really hard to take a stand in life because people don't like when you locate them still sitting down. Right? But when somebody takes a stand in a room full of people that are sitting down, particularly if that happens spontaneously, somebody might think, oh, wait, are, we supposed to be, are we supposed to be standing right now? Did I, did I miss something? What, what happens? You begin to examine yourself and wonder, did I miss something? Is something happening? And so I've seen this happen over, over, and over in the life of the people that I respect. When they stand for something, when they take heart and they take courage, somehow it stiffens my spine too. When somebody takes courage, when somebody makes a stand, when somebody has some bold defiance, I say, man, I didn't know you could say no to that. I didn't, I didn't know we could refuse that. I didn't know we could operate that way, and so, so I stand up. And then you notice a couple of other people standing up, but some of that never happens if the people of God just, don't, just wherever they are, whether it's at work, whether it's at school, you know, whether it's strangers in the marketplace, whether it's holding a public office, some, some people will never experience that and understand that if the people of God don't take a stand. I imagine that Daniel and his three companions weren't the only guys that were bought from Jerusalem. I imagine that everybody else just maybe said, hey, do we even have a choice? Uh, Listen, we're in this foreign land. Let me just eat this stuff. But besides, I wanted to try it anyway. Well, they see Daniel. Those guys aren't eating that. Wait, we can turn it down? They're looking healthy and strong. They would have never been able to see that. Never been able to see that if the people of God just didn't say, hey, listen, this is the line, here and no further. Here and no further. This is, this is the standard. This is, I mean, the chips fall where they may. The world needs to be reminded that they're sitting down. Thirdly, the world needs to see what real conviction looks like. I think it's just the truth that lots and lots of people, probably most people, don't have somebody in their life that is just consistently making principled decisions over and over and over and over and over again. I think some people can go through their whole life and not be in relationship with somebody who is making principled decisions every single day in every realm of their life. They're making principled decisions as, as it relates to how they spend their money. They're making principled decisions as it relates to how they spend their time. They're making principled decisions about their sexual ethic and how far they'll go in a dating relationship. They're making principled decisions about how they raise their kids and how they deal with conflict. Listen, you could go your whole life and not have a friend like that. 
You can have, you can go your whole life and not share a workspace with a person like that. And so when the people of God decide that they're going to do this, it's a real blessing to the world. It's a real blessing to your office when you decide that you're going to come at the time you're supposed to come and you're going to leave at the time you're going to leave. You're going to not take anything that doesn't belong to you, and it doesn't matter how profitable it is, and even if your job's on the line, you're going to honor God, and you're not going to do anything underhanded just because that's what we do. And that's who we are. And may the chips fall where they may. Some people have never worked with somebody that way, that operates that way. So it's a real gift to your office when you say, this is who I am. It's a real gift to your children when you can take a stand and say, listen, this, that's not who we are, son. That's not what we do. It's not what we do. Man, I was fortunate to have a father who was very imperfect, very imperfect, but he was a man of God. He was a man of God. I remember a lot of times just... My, my father was, my, my friends thought my father uh, was very strict because you were church kids. We were church kids. A lot of stuff we didn't get to do. A lot of places we didn't get to go. People tell me, man, your father is strict. And my father, just, there's a lot of stuff we didn't get to do. We, as a family, we didn't celebrate Halloween. Nobody could convince my father what we were celebrating. He didn't know. He said, we don't know what we're celebrating. We're, we're not going to do it. And so we didn't always like that, but he would keep us home on Halloween. He said, listen, the next day, the candy's going to be on sale anyway. Anyway, we'll get you as much candy as you want, but we don't do that. And so to this day, we don't partake. No, I'm not preaching sermons against Halloween. I'm not trying to put condemnation on you, but I'm just saying that's just a stand that we take, and I just saw him do that over and over. We bring home novels from school. This is our reading, and he would look through it. He said, man, this looks kind of, this looks kind of mature. This looks kind of demonic. Listen, uh, I'm, I'm going to go up to the school and take care of this tomorrow. And my dad just had a way of just sort of working with the te- teachers. They'd love to see him come. He said, listen, is there any way that he could get a different book? I mean, I know it's, I know it's a little work, extra work for you, but is there any way he can get it, an extra book? I promise he'll be on top of it. He'll have it turned in when it's supposed to be turned in. It's just that we, you know, we just don't approve of this. And do you know 100% of the time I got a different assignment? 100% of the time I got a different assignment. And all throughout my life, I saw my father take stands. Some of them seemed crazy. Some of them seemed unfounded. But I watched him take a stand. And, and do you know how much that benefits me today in my adult life? Do you know that my children benefit from just seeing the fruitfulness? To see that it pans out if you take a stand. You might take a hit in that moment. You might get laughed at in that moment. People might think you're crazy in that moment, but we've seen the faithfulness of God when we say yes to what we're supposed to say yes to and say no to what we're supposed to say no to. Your kids need for you to take a stand. Your kids need to hear you say, listen, if you live in this house, we go to church on Sunday morning. If you live in this house, we go to church on Sunday. Hey, if you're going to be hanging out, I need to know who are you going to be. I need their cell phone number. I need just a vial of blood, just a fingerprint, something. They need you to, they need you to say that. They, they need you to be that way. They need you to be that way. Ladies and gentlemen, you're dating in a dating relationship. The person that you're dating needs for you to say, listen, here and no further. If you can't respect this boundary, you keep pressuring me to do something that God says, no, listen, you aren't the one. You aren't the one. So it's a blessing to the world when we see people with conviction. Some people have never seen that. 
before. Fourth and final reason, and worship team, you can make your way up. The world needs to see God blessing the righteous. The world needs to see God blessing those righteous men and women who desire to take a stand for him. In the same way that many people haven't encountered and been in a relationship with somebody who's just full of conviction, the same way people have not really seen the righteous prosper in any meaningful way. They say, listen, you won't receive God's favor and his blessing on your life if you don't live a life of obedience. And so the, one of the greatest gifts that you can give to the world is to show an unbelieving world the power of God's faithfulness and blessing that he showers on the life of somebody who desires to go against the grain and to take a stand. To see the power of God. But what happens when these guys see that Daniel and his buddies are stronger than everybody else? What happens in Daniel chapter 3 when, when, the, when the three Hebrew boys are thrown into the fiery furnace for not bowing a knee uh, when, the, when the horns blow and, and they don't burn up in the fire? And the Spirit of God is in there with them. And the king said, didn't I throw three guys in there? Fourth one in there and look like the Spirit of God. Bring those boys out of here. Listen, we're going to worship your God. We're going to worship your God from now on. People need to see God showing up and showing out in the life of those who will be faithful. But we'll never get to see that if we don't, if we don't take a stand. So how does this relate to relationships? It has everything to do with relationships. Everything to do with relationships. There's no realm of relationship that goes untouched by this need and the blessing result, the fruitfulness in, uh, of taking a stand and doing so in the right way. And some of you, this hits you right between the eyes this morning. You don't have to search and think about ways where you, you might be falling in this area. You don't have to think long and hard about ways where you, you're giving room. You, you, you're, you're giving in in some area. And so trust me, this isn't designed to bring condemnation or to bring shame, but this is designed today to help you understand that you, the God you serve, and everybody that touches your life will be better off if you said yes to God. If you said yes to God in those meaningful ways where the stakes are high and in those small ways that seem really insignificant, everybody wins when you say yes to Jesus. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this opportunity, Lord, to speak your truth to your people. Thank you, Jesus, for um, your conviction today. Thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us guessing and wondering what we should do, but you speak your truth to us in ways that we can understand. So, Lord, it doesn't matter what we're dealing with today. We, we feel that you're speaking to us. It doesn't matter what realm of our life that this hits, Lord. We want to be uh, people who respond to what you're saying. So, Lord, I just ask that you would give us strength and you would give us courage to say yes to you today. Lord, to be determined, to square some things away in our heart, Lord. And Father, I pray that you would also just give us wisdom and the courage, Lord, to deal with people in a winsome way and to take a stand in a way that honors you and blesses the people that we're dealing with. doesn't matter who it is. That's a blessing to the folks that we're relating to. So, Lord, I just ask that you would blow the wind of your spirit to this place, particularly as we worship. And, Father, that as we worship you, that you would continue to till 
the soil of our heart so that we can be more like you, so that we can maintain our distinctiveness. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.